Did you know that although people had a sense of the course of acute kidney injury as early as the 18th century, it took well into the 20th century to conceptualize it? In fact, during World War I, acute kidney injury and resultant failure from trauma was called war nephritis. This term was forgotten at the end of the war. In the interval between the two wars, Colonel Baldwin Luque with the U.S. Medical Corps coined the term lower nephron nephrosis to describe the histologic kidney findings seen in over 500 members of the U.S. Army, with a myriad of fatal illnesses including burns, blackwater fever, heat stroke, poisoning, and incompatible transfusions. Lower nephron nephrosis then went on to be called acute renal failure, to represent the clinical syndrome rather than the histology, and was only replaced by acute kidney injury in 2006, following consensus that even minor changes in kidney function can have significant impact on outcomes. Today, our patient has acute kidney injury, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, You're in Trouble, Acute Kidney Injury. Time for our minute physiology. The human body has two kidneys located on either side of the spine in the retroperitoneal space. While most people are born with two kidneys, it is possible to live a healthy life with only one kidney, whether that be by birth, kidney donation, or removal for another indication. Each kidney, approximately the size of a fist, has more than one million microscopic functional units called nephrons. Nephrons consist of a filter, called a glomerulus, attached to a tubule. Blood enters the glomerulus through small blood vessels and is filtered before exiting, so that water and various small molecules, such as electrolytes and waste products, are removed from the blood. This filtrate enters the tubule of the nephron where, according to the body's needs, the tubule can reabsorb various molecules or secrete more waste products into the filtered fluid. Ultimately, the waste product we excrete at the end of the tubule is urine. Thus, the kidneys perform the vital life-sustaining job of filtering or cleaning blood and excreting wastes and excess fluid by way of urine. On average, about 200 liters of blood are filtered each day. If we assume a blood volume of 5 liters in the average adult, this entire volume is filtered 40 times per day. The kidneys are also responsible for many other functions. They maintain balance of electrolytes and water in the body, release hormones to regulate blood pressure, produce active vitamin D, which is important for bone health, and generate hormones to stimulate red blood cell production. Acute kidney injury, or AKI, refers to an abrupt and rapid decrease in kidney function over hours to days or weeks. This can be anywhere on a spectrum from mild loss in kidney function to complete kidney failure. If we think about the various important functions of the kidneys that we just talked about, we can come up with a good list of what happens to your body in AKI. Important examples include a buildup of waste products such as urea in your blood and resulting complications of their toxicity, as well as difficulty keeping your electrolyte and water balance in check. AKI is often under-recognized and occurs as a complication of other illnesses. It is very common in hospitalized patients. The incidence is usually quoted around 20% of medical patients and upwards of 50% of ICU patients. While Colonel Luque did not know the pathogenesis of lower nephron nephrosis in 1946, he did astutely identify that many different systemic illnesses could result in similar kidney damage. We've come a long way since then, and it is helpful to know a framework for etiologies of AKI as this will help guide a thorough history, physical exam, and investigations. (music) 
A commonly taught framework is one based on the anatomy of the kidney and divides etiologies of AKI into prerenal, renal, and postrenal causes. Prerenal causes are those that arise upstream of the kidney, and the common denominator is that they all ultimately result in less blood flow to the kidney. These include a myriad of causes such as hypovolemia, blood loss, hypotension or shock, and antihypertensive medications. Certain conditions such as heart failure, cirrhosis, and nephrotic syndrome don't necessarily result in total body volume depletion, but do decrease the volume available to circulate in the arteries to the kidneys and can cause prerenal AKI. Renal AKI can be divided into those conditions that affect various structures within the kidney, namely the glomeruli, tubules, interstitium, and vasculature. Glomerulonephritis can be due to autoimmune causes such as ANCA-related, anti-GBM, or immune complex-mediated, or infectious causes, post-streptococcal or staphylococcal being common culprits. Tubules can be damaged in what is called acute tubular necrosis, or ATN, which can be due to ischemia from severe hypotension, toxins such as contrast dye or some antibiotics, or deposition of certain substances, such as urate crystals in gout, light chains in multiple myeloma, cast nephropathy, or myoglobin and rhabdomyolysis. In fact, Colonel Luque's lower nephron nephrosis was an early histologic description of what we now call ATN. Acute interstitial nephritis affecting the interstitium can occur due to drugs such as NSAIDs, infections, or certain immune conditions. And finally, we can have vascular impairment in the kidney due to vasculitis or thromboembolic phenomena such as TTP. Lastly, we can think of those causes of AKI that arise in the anatomical structures that exist past the kidneys, known as postrenal AKI. For instance, any obstruction of the ureters or bladder, as can be due to malignancy, stones, or neurogenic causes, can cause backup of urine and back pressure on the kidneys, causing AKI. Whew, that's a long list of possible causes. But this is very helpful to think about when you approach a patient for history and physical examination. Alright, so now that we've talked about the physiology of acute kidney injury, let's discuss an approach to the patient with AKI. The first part of your patient encounter is always to screen for stability. ABCs, GCS, and vital signs will guide you to ensuring or achieving stability prior to further assessment and management. Based on the pre-renal, renal, and post-renal etiologies we just talked about, you can begin your history taking. Has your patient had good oral intake? Any nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea predisposing to dehydration? Do they have any cardiac history, such as aortic stenosis or heart failure, or any history of liver disease? Have they had any recent infectious symptoms or blood loss? Any autoimmune symptoms, recent antibiotic use, or contrast dye administration? It is also important to qualify and quantify their voiding. Have they been voiding more or less frequently, with more or less volume, or noticed any changes in their urine? We must obtain a good history of lower urinary tract symptoms, such as urgency, frequency, incomplete voiding, dysuria, and hematuria. Part of your history will also include symptoms that can arise as a result of AKI. For instance, have they noticed worsening leg swelling suggestive of volume overload? Any nausea, itchy skin, or overall sense of fatigue or unwellness? More severe AKI could also include confusion, chest pain, or dyspnea, which may be due to uremic encephalopathy or pericarditis. These, among others, are considered acute indications for hemodialysis. A physical examination will have to be just as comprehensive of the history. We can look for signs that point us towards causes as well as complications of the AKI. Starting with vital signs. Tachycardia and hypotension may point us towards hypovolemia or shock, while fevers may suggest an infectious component. 
Altered mental state may be due to metabolic derangements from the AKI, or may be a symptom of another illness that is also causing AKI, for example, septic encephalopathy. A thorough cardiac examination may reveal cardiac decompensation, which again may be the cause of the AKI or a result of it. Hence, the various categories of cardiorenal syndrome that have been described in the literature. Check for a pericardial friction rub, which may point you towards uremic pericarditis as a complication. A volume status examination is integral and includes pulmonary auscultation, examination of their peripheries, as well as the JVP to assess for signs of volume overload. Careful though, volume is tricky and it is possible for a patient to have signs of extravascular overload, such as ascites or peripheral edema, while still being intravascularly deplete, in decompensated cirrhosis for example. The JVP and bedside POCUS can be helpful in making this distinction. As part of your volume status examination in the patient with AKI, it is important to monitor urine output and track weights. Many hospitalized patients, especially those who are sicker, may benefit from Foley catheter insertion for accurate monitoring of their urine output and response to treatment, or perhaps as an intervention itself in the case of obstructive nephropathy. Daily weights provide another objective measure of their volume status and response to treatment. Now on to the workup. The workup you do will be important for establishing causes and complications of the AKI. Let's take a second to talk about creatinine. Creatinine is the byproduct of the natural breakdown of skeletal muscle and is one of the waste substances that is filtered by the kidneys. If your glomerular filtration is intact, creatinine is excreted in the urine freely. If your glomerular filtration is decreased, you will not excrete your creatinine as efficiently, and the creatinine level in your blood will rise. In fact, AKI is defined as an increase in creatinine of greater than 26 millimoles per liter within 48 hours, a rise greater than 1.5 times the patient's usual baseline creatinine within the past 7 days, or urine output less than 0.5 mils per kilo per hour for 6 hours. It is important to note that serum creatinine takes time to reach steady state, so even if a person suddenly becomes anephric, their kidney function is essentially zero but their serum creatinine will only rise by an estimated 100 millimoles per liter each day. This rate of rise is dependent on many things, such as body size and muscle mass, age and patient sex. Other routine tests in all patients include CBC, serum electrolytes, specifically looking at sodium, potassium, and bicarbonate, and urea. Urine studies should include urinalysis and urine microscopy, the latter of which may only be available by consulting nephrology. Based on your history and exam, you may obtain other tests including BNP, troponin, a liver panel, infectious workup including urine and blood cultures, creatine kinase, serum protein electrophoresis and free light chains assay if indicated, and serum urate. An ultrasound of the kidneys, ureter, and bladder can help assess for downstream obstruction. More targeted investigations such as a full autoimmune workup should be reserved for those individuals with suggestive signs or symptoms and in the setting of unexplained proteinuria and hematuria. If a patient has had a full workup ruling out pre-renal and post-renal causes of AKI, and if there is suspicion for a renal cause that is not explained by common drivers such as sepsis, ischemia, or toxins, the patient may benefit from a kidney biopsy. Time to call your friendly neighborhood nephrologist. So how do we treat our patient with AKI? As you might have predicted, the treatment will depend on what you think the cause of the AKI is. Most patients with AKI on the internal medicine ward have pre-renal injury which may have led to ATN, commonly due to volume depletion or sepsis. In these hypovolemic patients, your job will be to provide fluid resuscitation along with other appropriate treatments such as antibiotics. However, 
remember that you can also have pre-renal injury in a hypervolemic state. For example, your patient with decompensated heart failure and volume overload has poor effective arterial blood volume because their heart just can't keep up. In this patient, diuresis to offload volume and restore cardiac output would be a better strategy to improve kidney perfusion. Renal causes of AKI will require management of the identified etiology. Post-renal causes will require decompression of the urinary tract, and this can look different depending on where the obstruction is. For instance, if we have a bladder outlet obstruction, a Foley catheter will relieve this. However, a large stone blocking a ureter and causing hydronephrosis will require a nephrostomy tube pending definitive management. These patients will likely require involvement of urology. Many patients develop AKI in the setting of multi-organ disease or failure. These patients may have various indications for urgent hemodialysis, and it is important for the physician to recognize this. A-E-I-O-U is a good mnemonic for the indications for hemodialysis and stands for acidosis, electrolytes, specifically hyperkalemia, intoxication, such as toxic alcohols, overload, that is volume overload, and uremia. The caveat to all of these indications is a refractoriness to medical management. For instance, pulmonary edema with oligoenuria, which has not responded to diuretics, or persistent metabolic derangements, such as hyperkalemia or acidosis, warrant urgent nephrology consultation for consideration of hemodialysis. Furthermore, those patients who are critically ill and hypotensive may not be able to tolerate hemodialysis and may actually require ICU for vasopressor and ventilatory support while receiving intermittent or continuous renal replacement therapy. As you can see, the management of AKI depends on the etiology, the severity, and the clinical context, and thus can vary greatly from patient to patient. Alright, time for our medicine minute. Several landmark RCTs have looked at the timing of renal replacement therapy in critically ill patients with AKI to determine if earlier initiation is beneficial, but their results were ambiguous. In 2020, a Canadian multinational RCT called the START AKI trial randomized patients to an early strategy of renal replacement therapy in which therapy was initiated within 12 hours of the patient being deemed eligible for the study versus the usual strategy where clinicians were discouraged from initiating renal replacement until development of one or more of the usual indications, such as acidosis or hyperkalemia, or persistent AKI for more than 72 hours. They did not find any significant difference in their primary outcome of death from any cause at 90 days. The study was felt to address a long-standing clinical dilemma regarding starting RRT in critically ill patients with AKI. That is, there is no role for early initiation of renal replacement in critically ill patients with AKI, and the absence of complications from the AKI. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled You're in Trouble, Acute Kidney Injury. This episode was written by Dr. Thulasi Manokaran, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Tyrone Harrison, nephrologist, and Dr. Michael Fisher, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Basanthamoan. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.